0: I'm going to pick up in verse 16 this is of course the the middle of jesus interaction with uh, the woman at the well in samaria verse 16 jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered him i have no husband jesus said to her you are right Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. I, who speak to you, am. Let's pray. Almighty Father, help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Even as we hear your word preached this morning, I ask that you would give us a greater love for your word, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would be writing it upon our hearts, And that you would also fill our mouths with it. Help us to know it. Help us to speak it to others. So that they might know the great hope and power that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. It's kind of popular today, I think, in in certain circles. To talk about the church being the church. And on the surface of that, that obviously is something you should go, yeah. Yeah. The church should be the church. But the question is, what does that mean? What what should the church be doing? And often what happens is there's this tension that takes place. It's a a push and a pull between mission and worship. If you go to some parts of the PCA, you, you will feel definitely a strong pull for the church is supposed to be about worship. And if you go to other parts in the PCA, see this happens in a denomination, not just us and them kind of stuff. But there's a strong pull for mission, wanting to be engaged. And so there's, there's a tussle that takes place. But even when you have agreement within whether or not it's supposed to be mission or whether it's supposed to be worship, there's often conflict even amongst those people. What does that mission look like? And sometimes there's disagreement that takes place and how it should move and work. And the same thing with worship. How should we worship? What does that mean? And we tend to draw these lines in the sand all the time, us, them. Jesus is walking into a situation as he dialogues with this woman from Samaria in which he is engaged in mission and he's going to now be engaged in a discussion about worship. Both these things are going to meet within this conversation. That is important because both those things will meet within the person of Jesus Christ, who is on mission to make those others worship the true God. The big idea this morning is that Jesus creates genuine worshipers of the Father, and that really seems to be the main thrust there 's a lot that 's going on that 's going on around this sort of thrust in the, the sense I had as I was trying to finalize this sermon in the last few days was uh, trying to pick up a lot of little balls and just having two arms. And you know how it is if you have children and you've got toys, that every time you grab another one, one falls out. And that's the sense I sent. There are all these parts that are going there, and I'm trying to hold them all together and make it all make sense. And, and hopefully God's Spirit will make it all make sense to you. Okay, I think it makes sense to me, but he, His Spirit must make it. Help make sense to us. The first thing I want us to talk about this morning as we look at this text is the reality that Jesus seeks genuine worshipers among sinners. That's a very important thing. That's the idea of mission right there. Jesus comes, He's the only God who comes saying, I am here to save you. He comes to sinners for this purpose. Now, in the beginning of this text, Jesus tells her, it's in the imperative, he sort of commands her, go, get your husband, and come back here. Now, it's not exactly obvious why he says that. It's most likely tied to her response to him when she was saying, who are you to talk to me? You are a Jew, and I am a woman of Samaria, that that whole idea. And so in a sense, he's probably uh, you know, saying, you you you're uncomfortable talking to me. Well, get your husband and bring him back. Of course, we'll see. He actually does know what's going on in her life, uh, so it goes beyond even that comment of her own because she replies to him that I have no husband. Now, one of the fine peculiarities of Greek is that both for the woman, the word for hus- man, ugh, the word for man and the word for woman can also be used for husband, and wife, respectively. And so when you're looking at a text and you're trying to sort out which of those two meanings it it has, you usually look for personal pronouns. And this text has personal pronouns. And so, you know, it is your husband. Go get your husband. Not just go get a man, but go get the man that is associated with you, who is united with you in covenant of marriage. And she says that she has none. Now it's interesting that Jesus, in a sense, commends her for telling the truth. She could have fooled him, she thinks, anyway, by going and getting that man and just presenting him to her as sorry, to him as her husband. I'm getting all my personal pronouns messed up this morning. Forgive me. She could have done that. So Jesus commends her in that she is telling the truth, or at least enough of the truth, in this instance. But he knows what's really going on. We talked about this when we, when we were discussing Nicodemus, and there's a passage in, towards the end of chapter 2 that bleeds through the next few chapters, and that is this. Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so when when Nicodemus comes to him at night, he knows that Nicodemus on the outside is a respectable man. He is a leader, he is a teacher of Israel, but he knows what's really inside of Nicodemus. He knows that Nicodemus needs to be born again, that Nicodemus does not have this living, vital relationship with God, that Nicodemus is still dead in his sins, in his trespasses, even though he looks good to you and me. Jesus knows this. And so when he meets the woman at the well, he knows what's really going on. He he knows the the dynamics of sin in her particular life. Because he says to her, you have had five husbands. Even in our day, even in America, where the divorce rate is 50%, that would be considered fairly scandalous. Okay? Okay. We now have learned why it is she is coming to the well in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, when no one else is at the well. She is an outcast. The rabbinic teaching of that day, of which she probably would have heard enough because she's Samaritan, she's not completely disconnected from Israel, is that you are granted three divorces and no more. 3 strikes. You can't if you can't get your wedding, you know, marriage sorted out in 3 shots, I guess you're gone. I don't know. That sounds like a strange policy for me, but in Israel that was what it was. More than 3 marriages were disapproved and there was no concept like there is for us today of common law marriage. So, you know, Jesus couldn't, have, well, how long have you lived with this man you're currently living with? Oh, it's been 10 years. You're you're married in the eyes of the law. There was no concept of that in Israel or in Samaria because remember The Samaritans had the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, so they understood the biblical teaching, enough of the biblical teaching about marriage and about divorce to kind of figure some of this stuff out. There weren't many differences with them on that regard. As I mentioned last week, she is seeking her life in men, this endless series, it seems, of men. And Jesus is here now bringing her sins to the surface her primary sins these are not the only sins that she has but he's bringing these primary ones to the surface but i want us to remember this i want us to remember that that broken relationships here are a symbol or sorry a symptom of her problem they're not her real problem The real problem is that she's a sinner. These broken relationships are just a manifestation of that. And so when we interact with people, particularly in more scandalous forms of sin, we we need to remember something about them. That is just a manifestation of their bigger, real problem. Let's not make the manifestation the problem. You understand what I'm saying? For some people, it might be unbiblical divorce. For some people, it might be adultery. Uh, That's not what the word I meant. Um, Pornography or sexual sin of some kind. Some people, it might be theft. For some people, it might be gluttony. But whatever it is, that is just a symptom of the problem in their heart. It's not the real thing. Now, a doctor, a doctor may ask of may ask for your symptoms, but he doesn't just treat your symptoms. Okay, because he's got to find out what those symptoms represent in terms of the disease that is at work within your body so that he can accurately treat that disease. If he just goes about treating symptoms, he's not curing the illness. Okay, Jesus here is bringing these things up so that he can now begin for her to see the problem that's functioning in her life. All right. What we notice here is that here's the contrast with with Nicodemus. He was a religious and respectable man. She is the moral outcast, and the fact is that Jesus didn't shun her. Okay, you'll notice it wasn't like, wow, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband? He doesn't back away. He doesn't run away. He remains engaged with her because he is on mission in this instance. She doesn't question it's odd. She doesn't question how he knows this. (laughs) Now, wouldn't you? If someone someone you've just met for the first time just tells you your marriage history, wouldn't you have a question about that? I would. But she says, I perceive, I understand that you are a prophet. Now, what does she mean by that? Now, I say that because, remember, the Samaritans only used the first five books, the books of Moses. And so they didn't quite have the same understanding as the Jews as there were a number of prophets that came. You know, in her mind, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Hosea, all those guys, not really prophets, okay? Okay. But in Deuteronomy, it talks about the prophet like Moses that will come. And so when you hear this, uh, we need more of these little guard things here. When you hear this, you're, you're tempted to think, is she talking about you are the prophet who is to come? Or is she just trying to push him a little farther away? It's really unclear what's going on here. But she seeks, perhaps, his understanding, or perhaps just brings up this worship war between them to kind of dissuade Jesus from talking about the fact that she's had five husbands and the guy she's not with isn't her husband. We're not sure what was operating in her heart, so we must be careful. But we do know what the scriptures say. She refers to the conflict over, with regard to worship that went on between Israel and Samaria. And the issue really was, should you worship in Jerusalem, like the Jews said, or on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans say? And now you might be wondering, why do the Samaritans say Mount Gerizim? Is anybody wondering that? There's a couple yeses. We read from Deuteronomy earlier, Ed read from De- Deuteronomy, And in the Samaritan version of that, when it says, the place I will show you, which the Jews read, okay, it's future. He's going to show us, and we see later from, uh, God shows David, his king, where that place is going to be. It's going to be Jerusalem. Well, in the Samaritan version, that was not a future tense, I will show you. They interpreted that as a past tense, the place I have shown you. And so when they look back you know, into Exodus and farther beyond into Genesis, what they see is the first place that Abraham put up an altar was Shechem. And Shechem is at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And so for both people's perspectives, if you, if you take that one verb in that particular tense, their view makes sense. And so she's kind of asking, well, which one of these is true? You're so smart. You know all about me. What's the truth? And Jesus doesn't answer the way she wants him to answer. She seems to want to push him away, but Jesus is going to keep pressing in. He's going to keep pressing in, particularly to seek to give her life that, she's, that he's talked about thus far. And I want us to really... Th- focus on this one thing, this aspect of this, because it's consistent throughout Scripture. For instance, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving, full of, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this is very consistent with what we saw in John 3. Jesus came into this world. He took on flesh and blood to save sinners. For instance, Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so, this woman in Samaria, she's a sinner. That's pretty clear. She's lost. That also is clear when we think about these questions that she asks. But it's not just... 1 Timothy. It's not just Luke. Mark chapter 2. And when Jesus heard it, this is the complaint of the the Pharisees against uh, him and his disciples hanging out with those sinner people. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." And here we really kind of, if you want to put those ideas of mission and worship together, I think John Piper does an excellent job in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Particularly he says this, mission or missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Now, He's not saying mission isn't important. We see that it began right there in the Garden of Eden. Mission is important. But the purpose of mission is to make people worshipers of the one true God. And so Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, not just to give them eternal life so they can do their own thing, but precisely so that they become genuine worshipers of the one true God. And then he makes this bold statement, you, not singular, speaking, to, speaking specifically and only about her, but you, plural, meaning, hey, you Samaritans, you Samaritans will worship the Father. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to change everything from this mess that you perceive now into something much more beautiful and glorious than you could imagine, and so we see that the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world, even the sins of a wicked Samaritan woman. Let's take another step. Jesus sends the Spirit to enable sinners to worship. He, doesn't just, he didn't just come to make worshipers, but he sends the Spirit to enable those sinners to begin to worship. Now, there's one reason why it's not going to matter whether you're doing it on Mount Gerizim or on, in Jerusalem, and the reason, one of the reasons Jesus gives is that God is spirit. In other words, he's not limited. He's not spatially located in Jerusalem or spatially located in Gerizim. He is everywhere, and so we can worship him everywhere. That's part of what Jesus is getting at here. And so, sometimes our, our understanding of worship, the things that we think are really right, are really kind of wrong. And we have to be willing to listen to Christ to get our bearings straight when it comes to worship. The idea is not where you worship God. The real idea is how you worship, as well as who you worship. We'll get to who later, but let's focus on how you worship you worship the God who was spirit precisely through the spirit. And so he says, genuine worshipers, authentic worshipers, because there are fake worshipers. There are people who go into churches and play the game. They exist. I know they exist. You know they exist. And Jesus wants to, wants to let her know that he knows they exist. There are people who are authentic, who are genuine, who are real in their worship of God. And the people who are, are those who worship in spirit and truth. And we're going to focus right now on spirit. We'll get to truth in a moment. Genuine worshipers are able to be genuine worshipers precisely because they worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Messiah and as the Son of God, as we've seen already in this Gospel of John, Jesus has the Spirit without measure, and Jesus baptizes people with that Spirit. He freely grants it to them. We see this in the life of Nicodemus because he offers Nicodemus to be born again, to have a new life, a new beginning. And he talks to her about the the living water that will well up in her in salvation, in eternal life. Well, that's not the only thing it wells up in her. It, It wells up in people worship. The Holy Spirit, for those who have it dwelling within them, will well up in worship. If you have no desire for worship, then there's something wrong. It's either there's no Holy Spirit in there, or you have so grieved the Holy Spirit by sins of yours that you no longer listen to Him, but something's wrong if there's not a desire to worship. Philippians chapter 3, we see Paul saying this, "...for we are the circumcision..." Remember, there's the false circumcision. There's the people who are trying to force people who to be physically circumcised in order to be full Jews and therefore full worshipers of God. And Paul is arguing against that. And he says, want to know who the real circumcision is? Well, circumcision of the heart. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so true worshipers are those who have been circumcised of heart. They've been born again. They have the indwelling spirit that enables them to, to worship the God of glory. And they rejoice, or they they're, they're taken up in joy about Jesus Christ. And they put no confidence or joy in themselves because they know they fall short of the glory of God. It's not just Philippians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 5. Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so part of the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is worship. When there's that song in your heart that's directed towards God, not just you're whistling something from the radio that you heard earlier, but you're directing the melody of your heart towards the Savior and Lord. And you're filled with gratitude for all that He has given you, for all the Father has bestowed upon you. That's worship. And that's what happens, that's a sign of whether or not someone is filled with the Spirit. There's others that, are, that go on in that, this particular text, but that's important to recognize. The work of the Spirit, producing worship in redeemed sinners. And so real worship begins on the inside, as the Spirit enables us to perceive and to love Christ. Not only that, but the Spirit, who is also the Spirit of adoption, helps us to perceive God as Father, to be trusted. Remember, He said that you Samaritans will worship not the nameless God. Father. The Father. Had one of those moments this weekend. We, we did our first trip to the Y. And for Jaden, that's awesome. I mean, she's doing laps of the pool. She's got the whole swimming thing down. There's Micah, a little timid at first, but she's got her life preserver on and she's she's diving in there and she's having a blast, kicking around. Eli, different story. And so, cover your ears, like. So I'm, I'm hold- he's got his life preserver on, and I'm, I'm holding him up in the water, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's scary when you can't feel something underneath your feet. I understand this. And what I tried to say to him was, do you trust your Father? Don't laugh. <laughs> I will not let anything bad happen to you. I am right here. I'm not going to let you sink. Do you trust me? And I'm trying to communicate to him that I, your father, trust this life preserver to keep you buoyant, to keep you up on top. And you know what? In his fear, he, it just wasn't connecting. You know? Just wasn't connecting. And you know, yesterday, we, f- we finally caved to our daughter's request to watch Frozen. Frozen. Okay. But you know what's really good about that movie? It's on that theme of perfect love casts out fear. One of the two sisters has a curse where she f- makes everything frozen, hence the title. Okay, and she's even damaged her sister, so her f- sister is is freezing and what the the prophetic sort of uh troll told her was that emotions and fear would be a big part of it. And so it was all fear on her part, that she's freezing everything, she's keeping everything away, she's trying to maintain safety because she feels afraid. And she doesn't know how to thaw anything. She's frozen over the whole land, doesn't know how to thaw it out. And she was told, well not she was told, her sister was told, perfect love. And so she thinks this means she has to get the man she loves to kiss her. But what it ends up being is she sacrifices her life to save the sister who cursed her. What a Christ picture. Jesus, who endures the curse to save the ones who put the curse on him in the first place. When we understand that, we should have this idea of perfect love, which casts out the fear in our hearts freeing us to worship the God who redeems us. And so genuine worshipers, in other words, those who are are filled with the Spirit, do not participate in dead orthodoxy because there's more to worship than believing the right things. It's believing they're good things. And they're for me. And so without the Spirit... Worship becomes dead orthodoxy. Without the Spirit, worship often becomes mindless rituals. And so as we engage in worship, we need to remember that it's not just about saying the words, but saying, I believe these words. I believe these songs. I I take comfort in these things. I rejoice in these things. And so that's what should be going on within your heart and mind as we Do our liturgy. I believe I'm a sinner, but I believe that Christ is sufficient to save me. Believe these things. And what Jesus is saying here, the the flip side of the coin is that the Father rejects superficial or insecure worshipers. He wants passionate, engaged worshipers. Tozier and Piper, for instance, say this. Tozier. Tozier. God's highest desire is that every one of his believing children should so love and so adore him that we are continuously in his presence, in spirit and in truth. And our big problem is is that we want everyone around us to so love and adore us instead of him. That last part was me, not Tozer. Don't blame him for that. John Piper says that we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. That's what missions is about. Bringing them into a passionate worship of the true God. And so as we think about the the meeting that we're going to have tonight, not tonight, I don't keep saying that, because I'm going to preach that long, no. (laughs) I have to be somewhere else tonight. As our congregational meeting, when we're talking about expanding our worship space, it's not just so we can fill this place with dead people, spiritually. But we want to fill this place with dead people made alive by Jesus Christ, who are passionately engaged in the worship of Him and wanting to make His name known, not just in this room, but beyond this room. And so some of the people that may come here initially might be dead, but we, our goal is that they become alive in Jesus Christ through the ordinary means of grace, of the preaching and of the Word and the sacraments. So, Jesus was sent to make sinners into worshipers by the living God, by the Spirit. Third thing. I thought that was the short thing. I was wrong. Jesus sends the Spirit to help us worship in truth. And so, in addition to the how-you-worship question, uh, there is also the who-you-worship question. The the Samaritans weren't worshiping the Father. Uh, They they had no knowledge of this understanding of who God was. The Samaritans, Samaritans, according to Jesus, worshipped what they did not know. In other words, they worshipped in ignorance, not in truth. There are lots of Samaritans out there today who worship in ignorance, not in truth. Some people say many are the roads that lead to God. No. One is the road that leads to God. There are many of ro- many roads that lead to hell. And there are many people who are on them thinking they're going to God. That is the dangerous thing. There are many who are engaged in false worship. Who we worship matters. Jesus says that the we Jews worship what we know. Now that sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Well, no, it's not. They had the Scriptures. The fuller Scriptures than the Samaritans did. And so they're worshiping who God has revealed himself to be in the Scriptures. And then he goes even further. He says, because salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah is going to come from the Jews. The Scriptures are going to come from the Jews. But they can be enjoyed by Samaritans. Africans, Asians, North Americans, South Americans. So salvation is from the Jews. It's from Jesus, but it's going to go spreading out from Jerusalem to cover the ends of the earth, as Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. So genuine worshipers worship not only in spirit, but in truth. And now we have a problem. That word truth can have an objective meaning and it can have a subjective meaning. The objective meaning of truth would be to worship according to the truth or to worship according to a standard. Okay, that's the objective meaning. The subjective meaning would be to worship free from falsehood or to worship truthfully or sincerely. Which of these things is Jesus talking about? I believe it's the first of these two things. Precisely because the objective includes the subjective. Because the Scriptures, the standard according to which we must worship, include discussing the subjective nature of our worship. Isaiah 29, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. It's a passage warning about judgment. Okay? And so, the objective scriptures speak to the subjective experience we're supposed to have in worship. We're not supposed to have lips that are saying wonderful things about God when our heart doesn't feel wonderful things about God. When it feels wonderful things about our football team. Or whatever. Okay, I'll say hockey, since the Bruins are out. That there's a, there's a connection between... Our lips and our heart. So the objective standards of Scripture include this internal thing that includes how we are to worship. Jesus quoted this in the passage that Ed read for us in Matthew 15 for this very reason. We are to worship the true God as he reveals himself to us in the Scripture. Okay, there's our who to worship. But not only that, but Scripture also tells us how to worship. It tells us about the elements or practices of worship. Because just as if, remember, if there's no spirit in worship, it's dead orthodoxy, dead ritual. If there's no truth in worship, then it's just chaos. It's all experiential. And we've seen some of that on TV, I think. Not so good. Okay? And so we submit our wills to how God wants us to worship as revealed in the Scriptures. Now, this was one of the, th- the points of disagreement between Luther and Calvin, Lutherans and Reformed people. The Lutherans uh, had a-, a view of, well, if God does not prohibit it, we're free to do it. Calvin and the Reformed had the view of what's called the regulative principle of worship, that we must only do that which God commands or permits. Okay, So there's certain things that must happen in worship, and then there's some things that are allowable in worship. We can do this. We see examples of this, positive examples, not negative examples, of this taking place in worship. And so we believe the how we're to worship God is revealed to us in scripture. And so our liturgy, we see calls to worship in scripture. So we can do that. We see call, we see confessions of sin within scripture. And so we believe that it is appropriate for us to do that within our, the context of our worship service. We see confessions of faith in scripture. And so we say we can do this in our worship service. We see prayer. We see song, we see sermon, and so we're doing these things, benediction, because not just we want to do these things, it's not because, you know, Pastor Steve or Dennis or somebody thought it would be cool to do those things, but we're submitting ourselves to the Scriptures. and saying, this is what the Scripture teaches us about worship, this is what we're supposed to do in our worship service, so let's do that, Okay? John Frame notes that the mighty Lord of heaven and earth demands that our worship, indeed all of life, be governed by his word. And two guys who learned that the hard way were Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron the priest, who offered strange fire. You don't know what in the world that was. Anyone who thinks they know exactly what that was, I'm not listening to them. I think it's obscured enough in the scriptures to teach us that a precise point don't go beyond scripture. Okay? This bug is driving me crazy. I think I got him. All right. So, we, we apply this with the, uh, the understanding that the content of sermons, the content of our songs, the content of our prayers must be biblical. They must align themselves with what the truth of the scriptures say. It doesn't mean they have to be verbatim word for word. My sermon is not just reading the text of John's Gospel, but I have, to say every, I have to say things that are consistent with the teaching of John's Gospel. It's the same with our songs and our prayers. Culture and difference will affect these things. If you go to a church in Asia, the music is probably going to sound a little different. okay? And the language will most certainly be different. <laughs> so often we get caught up in our preferences for worship, well, I like these songs. I don't like those songs. I like this kind of music. I don't like that kind of music. And that, those are the wrong kinds of questions. You can have preferences. Preferences are okay. Preferences are good. You can say, I like this instrument. I don't like that instrument. It's okay not to like guitars or drum in a worship service. It's okay. It's the question of Are you trying to force your preferences on everybody else? Because they're only preferences. They're how you want to fulfill the elements of worship found in Scripture. That's an important distinction that too many churches forget. We haven't really had that problem since I've been here, so let's pray it stays that way, people. I don't want them fights. But she's not convinced yet. See, I've got a friend named David Castor, and he had a phrase that he would say sometimes, that's nice. That's essentially what she's saying here. Strange man at the well, that's nice. You see, when Messiah comes, and you ain't him, by the way, he's going to tell us all things. And so you can talk to me about wor- genuine worshipers in spirit and truth, blah di blah di blah di blah. You can say that it doesn't matter which mountain we're going to worship on, blah de blah de blah de blah. But when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us the truth. He's going to tell us the real deal. And that's when Jesus drops the bomb on her. He who speaks to you, AM. It's a form of the I AM sayings, because there's no he. Now, he has kept the, 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 his identity of Messiah secret. I mean, John the Baptizer has been blabbing it all over the place, but Jesus himself has not talked about himself in those terms because everyone misunderstands what it means to be a, the Messiah, but this woman seems to have enough understanding of that. She's not putting all the political stuff on it. You know, he's going to be the king. He's going to get rid of the Romans and all that kind of stuff. He's going to teach us all we need to know, and he says, I'm the guy. Do you think he's the guy? That's the important question for all of us. So worship remains a contentious issue for many churches, many denominations. I could go on for days about that. When we, when we fight about worship, we generally fight about the wrong things. It's like the Gerizim versus Jerusalem controversy. We need to regain our focus on who we worship the Trinity, with God as Father. We need to focus more on how we worship, according to the Scriptures and from the inside out. You see, the remnant of sin confuses all of these things in us, and it threatens loving unity. But a focus on Christ crucified for us should maintain loving unity that moves towards mission, that idea of making others genuine worshipers of the one true God. I love how Jesus joins things together that we keep trying to separate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. That indeed He is the one who will tell us all things we need to know. That He is the one who speaks to us in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. That He is the one who sends the Spirit. So that we can understand the scriptures, that we can have new life, and that we can worship truthfully, vibrantly. And so I ask that that spirit would be at work in us to help us to understand the scriptures in terms of our worship, to work in us so that existentially we'll be engaged in worship. Because if the Spirit that wells up in life is in us, that life abundant will just flow up and worship. So I pray that that good work of the Spirit would be taking place amongst us. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.